I'm uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. 3-605.10.20.22.24.26.50.70.80. It specifies clean shirt, short hair, tie, pressed trousers, sports jacket or suit, and leather shoes, preferably with a high shine on them. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Hello, everyone. This is Scott White, and this is the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. What we're going to do is look at Dan Aykroyd Projects and his personal performance in said project. Now, my last podcast had the name of Dan Aykroyd is Batshit Crazy. I had to change the name because that name, some reason, wouldn't let me put it on certain podcasting sites. So the name now is the Dan Aykroyd Podcast, but the gist of the podcast is the same. And what what are we reviewing today? Dr. Detroit came out in 1983. This is Dan Aykroyd's first solo starring role. Most of his movies up until now was with, were with John Belushi. And this movie came out after Belushi's death. However, this movie was in production before Belushi died because at that point, the studio wanted to separate them and see if they could make money with both of them in movies, basically trying to double their profit. So that was the studio's thinking at the time. So this was the movie for Dan Aykroyd, Dr. Detroit. And it starts off with Devo's Dr. Detroit. And I will other say this movie on a whole came out in 1983. This movie screams the 80s. Shorty shorts, big hair, uh, cocaine, uh, you know, uh, pinky nail. It's all there. Big necklaces. This movie, this movie is a really a time capsule of the 80s. So the movie starts with uh, Dan Aykroyd power walking through the park with Devo singing the theme song "Doctor Detroit." And let me tell you something. This is a very catchy, it's a very Devo song. And um, one of the best parts of the movie, actually, is the, the the main, the title song, Dr. Detroit. So we see Dan Aykroyd, and he's power walking through the, through the park. And there's this odd scene at the beginning where he power walks in up to the statue of Abraham Lincoln. And all these little black children are... are playing in front of the statue and then there's a shot of Abraham Lincoln looking down at the children and I don't know if that symbolism is like showing that Abraham Lincoln set the slaves free it was a really weird out of place shot I thought in the middle of the opening credits it really came out of nowhere and it and that was it and then it was over and then he starts power walking again and while he's power walking we are introduced to the Howard Hessman character in this movie. And Howard Hessman plays Smooth, and he is the pimp to the four main uh, female leads in this in this movie. So the gist of it so far is what we what we find out is Howard Hessman is a pimp. He's working for Mom. Mom is the main villain in the movie, so he's working for Mom. Mom wants her money. Howard owes her eighty thousand dollars. And he doesn't have it because he's blown all his money on women and apartments and clothing and all that. He makes up the story that this guy from Detroit called Dr. Detroit has muscled in, has muscled in on his territory, and he doesn't know what to do because he's scared. And so he's going to set up a meeting between Mom and Dr. Detroit. We're not that far into the movie. We're about 10 minutes into the movie. Basically, the gist of the movie right there and then. Which I appreciate. We're not, 
you're not fumbling around for a plot in this movie. This is what happened. He's in trouble. He needs a patsy. Dan Aykroyd is going to be the patsy. Later that evening, Howard is out with his four uh, with his four women, and they see Dan Aykroyd at the restaurant, and they invite him over to the table. And what ensues next is that these uh, four women seduce Dan Aykroyd, and they take him out with them all night. And they get this... And this is what I find hard to believe, and I guess this is what they were saying is that, you know, men are men are slaves to their dicks is basically what I got from this scene because this prim and proper college professor, that's what he plays in this movie, he's a prim and proper college professor. Four women smile at him and he throws all of his... <laughs> all you know all of his values out the window and he starts he starts drinking and he starts smoking marijuana and he starts he starts doing all this stuff that he has never done in his entire life just because four women you know four women are just throwing themselves at him so this shows you it's like men will do anything uh, anything for a pretty face i don't agree with that but that's what it's that, but that's what we're getting from this so far Howard Hesman's plan is he is going to get Dan Aykroyd to quote-unquote get into the quote-unquote entertainment business. Because at this point, Dan Aykroyd does not know that all these four women are hookers. Uh, he thinks they just use the vague term entertainment. That's what they're in. Howard Hesman talks to talks him into it, quote-unquote. And, and then the night goes on. More debauchery goes on. They get into the hot tub, all that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the next the next morning, we see Howard Hessman's chauffeur drop Dan Aykroyd off at his house. He still lives at home, apparently. He's a professor in a uh, he's a professor in a college, and they drop him off at home. We have the main plot of we have a plot of 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 Howard Hessman's character. He's got to find a way out of his mess. Now we also have the secondary plot, which is kind of contrived, is Dan Aykroyd works for a college. The college is going broke. The college needs this donation from this huge donor, and this huge donor is coming into town. So they have to schmooze this huge donor. Everything is falling into place. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is going to be set up as a patsy to be a pimp for these women, while his parents and his father runs the college. So while his father... And, and the college may go under if they don't get this big, big endowment. We cut to Dan Aykroyd's class, and he, he, he does a class on literature, and they're talking about Lancelot. Once again, this is a parallel to what's going on in the movie. They talk about Lancelot, how he was, how he was chaste, and how he was pure, and how he had morals, and how he, he shunned the, you know, he shunned the lustful ways of life to be pure. And we just, we were just shown that Dan Aykroyd gave that up in a second. But however, he is chastising his students for saying that Lancelot is stupid for being chaste and all that. When he just, the night before, just gave up all his morals uh, for four pretty faces. After that, we go to a scene where now, now smooth, Howard Hessman character, he's got to go to mom. So mom is the antagonist and he has to go to mom and he has to tell her that Dr. Detroit is taking over. Since there is no Dr. Detroit, he has to get his chauffeur to beat him up. Um, we've seen this before. Uh, this, this reminds me of the scene in Dirty Harry where, uh, where the bad guy pays that guy to beat him up so he looks like... So so it looks like you know uh, Clint Eastwood beat him up in that movie. Very similar scene here. 
but he can't get his chauffeur to do it. Now his chauffeur is black, and that comes in that comes in later. He's telling his chauffeur to beat him up. His chauffeur won't beat him up, so he starts he starts laying into his chauffeur and he starts calling him names and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't call him the N-word. I know this is the 80s, but please don't call him the N-word. He doesn't. He goes right up to that, but he doesn't do it. He goes, my grandparents owned your grandparents. And that's when he... That's when the the chauffeur snaps and he starts beating him up and beating him up and beating him up. Then we cut to the scene where Howard Hessman has come to mom and said that Dr. Detroit came into town, beat him up, and has taken over. Basically, Howard Hessman says, I'm out of this, mom. This is between you and Dr. Detroit. And mom lets him go, which I don't totally understand. So, you know, this guy, Howard Hessman, was working for mom. And Howard Hessman let this other guy come in and take over, supposedly come in and take over his business, and she's fine with it, and she lets him walk in any other movie. That happens, that guy, Howard Hessman, dead, gone. It doesn't make sense that she let this guy walk away, and this is this is gonna something that's going to bother me. I'll talk about it at the end of the movie, but this is something that's going to bother me. So then we, yeah, because we cut to Howard Hessman, off scot-free, he takes a he goes to the airport and this is he uses a false name this was the 80s that when you that's when you could fly without identification like i said this this show this uh, movie is really really 80s you could smoke indoors you could smoke on planes you could fly under a fake name all that is in play here in this movie he catches a one-way ticket to a tropical island somewhere and gone basically howard hessman is gone for the rest of the movie which I am disappointed in because he played the sleazy manipulator to a T in this movie. And I enjoyed his character because you disliked his character. And that's what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to dislike this character. And Howard Hessman is a very likable guy. This movie came out in 1983. So WKRP just went off the air the, the year before. He was still pretty much... He was still, I guess, in the public eye at this point. So I wanted to see more of him in this movie. And the fact that he makes an early exit from this movie is a detriment to the movie because he was a nice character in this movie. <clears throat> we cut back to Mom. Now Mom is pissed that Dr. Detroit is moving in on her territory. She distinctly asks, What's the, what's the name of Smoo's black prostitute? They tell her, it's like, well, get her busted. We're going to see how Dr. Detroit takes care of her, you know, takes care of her gals. So we cut to Dan Aykroyd. He's at a meeting with his father. They're talking about the big banquet where the big donor is going to come in and give him the big endowment. And they're, they're working it out. It's just a bunch of old white men talking about old white man problems. And the this is where, I mean, the humor is supposed to come from these from these old men talking about st stuff that's irrelevant when a big, huge problem is hanging over their head like they have no money for the college and these guys are worried about fruit cups and stuff like that. That's where the humor is supposed to come from. The humor falls flat. No humor at all. The girls call Dan Aykroyd at the college, so I, get, I don't know how they... They got his number. They must have. They must have gotten the number from him last night, or something like that, or looked his name up in the in the phone book to find him. 
at the at the college where he works. Well, they call and they say that well, Smooth Howard Hessman's character said you were in charge while he's gone, and you know one of our girls are busted. We need you to come in and you know and get her out of jail. And they do it on the speakerphone a couple of times. The old thing where they're talking on the speakerphone, they say something risque, and he lunges for the phone and picks it up. Once again, another old joke that doesn't work in this setting. The chauffeur shows up, and there's supposed to be a juxtaposition of this young, black, hip chauffeur is in this room with these old, dowdy, white men. And he's like, and once again, you're supposed to see the humor in that, and then once again, it falls flat. They take, the chauffeur takes Dan Aykroyd to the courthouse where one of the girls is, you know, is being held on a, on a prostitution charge. And he peeks into the courtroom and he sees that the, the judge is an old Southern judge, uh, you know, and his name is like Thomas Jefferson, you know, it's all, you know, Jackson, it's all the names of the South in one long name on the door. Dan Aykroyd sees this downtrodden lawyer who's dressed like Colonel Sanders in the lobby and he buys his clothes from him and he comes in and he's doing a he's doing a, a, a southern a southern gentleman a southern draw sort of a maybe a foghorn leghorn that's what he, what's he going to do he's going to convince the judge that he's a southern gentleman like himself and his sister who was arrested could not be held on on any charges such as prostitution why that is ludicrous and they bond over being Southern, and they bond over being racist, and he lets her go, and while they're walking out, the, they see that the, uh, that the woman is black, and once again, I'm like, oh God, please, the judge is not going to stand up and yell out, you know, she's an N-word, which he doesn't, he stands up and yells out, that girl is colored. And she walks back in with attitude. It's like, I wasn't colored. I was born that way. And then Dan Eckerwart ushers her out. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of on-the-edge racial humor in a couple of scenes right here. We're back at, um, the pen, we're back at um, Smooth Penthouse. And Smooth is long gone. He's on a plane. He's gone. So the, for the, but, no, but nobody knows that he's not coming back. They think he's just gone for a couple of days. And the girls try to convince Dan Aykroyd that Smooth left him in charge, and Dan Aykroyd is like, no, you, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why would I be in charge? I have a job. I'm a college professor. And then at this point, Mom comes in. And Mom comes in, busted in with her henchmen, and all her henchmen are dressed as bellboys and are bald. That's the look. It's never explained why. That's just how they look. And Mom busts in and says that the girls are now hers, and Dan Aykroyd, at this point, first finds out, being naive, he first now realizes that all four women are prostitutes. Then, for some reason, and this is odd too, like I said before, in the scene before, he becomes, a, you know, he adopts this southern, he, he adopts this southern accent and this, this southern personality. And, he, and in real life, he is just a mild-mannered professor. So this... So him adopting the, you know, the Southern personality out of nowhere, it, it's just odd. It's, I, if, if he was that person in real life, he could not pull off being a Southern gentleman if he was just, if he was a scholar, if he was a nerdly scholar his whole life just to pull off a Southern gentleman at the drop of a hat. It, 
it wouldn't ring Tiru. He, 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 I don't think he could do it. And he does it here once again. Once again, when Mom tries to take over, he he jumps into the fray and he pretends he is Dr. Detroit's personal assistant. And once again, he pretends he knows karate and I just don't think, unless he is, uh, you know, unless, and this has only happened, this is only one day. You know, all, all the stuff has happened. So this is like a day and a half, all this has happened. So he jumps into the fray and he tells her, you know, you're going to have to talk to the doctor yourself. And he sets up a meeting with her and Dr. Detroit. And they leave. And once again, after they leave, he turns back into the professor. So he's able to jump into these personas, which I don't think he would be able to jump into, being a... Just being a, a, a teacher, a professor. The only way, the only way I could see this is he... He teaches, uh, you know, he, when he teaches literature, he teaches about heroes and, you know, he teaches about knights in shining armor and maybe that's it. Maybe he's drawing on his knowledge of this, but it just doesn't ring true because not only would you have to have knowledge of this, you would have to have the chutzpah to do this. And up to this point, why would he have the chutzpah to do this? He's just been a normal, mild professor. He even said that in the movie at one point. He says, my life is set. I'm a professor. I'm teaching. I've taught my entire life. Then we cut to him in his bedroom. And we have now we have the dream sequence trope. Where Dan Aykroyd dreams about being a pimp. And pimping out his mother and his dad. And this is... It's an unnecessary scene. It doesn't add anything to the movie. I guess it shows that he's getting psychologically worn down, but I think we've seen that from the scenes before where he's adopting these personalities that he shouldn't really have. And, uh, you know, he wakes up and uh, he wakes up and it's the next day and his dad, his dad gives him a bunch of errands and one of the errands is to pick up the guy with the check for the college. That's what he has to do. The guy with the check for the college, he's coming in on the train tonight and you got to get to the train station and you got to pick him up. And at this point, Dan Aykroyd's a little punch drunk because he's not getting any sleep and he's just he's just running on raw energy right now. So it's just all second nature to him. He's just walking. He's a zombie right now. And all of a sudden, the chauffeur, he comes in and he says, don't, don't you remember? You got to meet mom today. You said you were going to meet mom as Dr. Detroit. And, and when he hears Dr. Detroit, once again, Dan Aykroyd snaps into action. And he runs to a phone and he calls mom. And he uses the Dr. Detroit voice. I'm not going to attempt to do it. But he, he uses the Dr. Detroit voice to move up the to move up the meeting. The meeting was at midnight to move it up at nine. And once, and I don't, I guess this scene is just to, to let the audience hear what the, the Dr. Detroit character is going to be. Because once again, it's not needed. In the two scenes before, when Dan Aykroyd set up the meeting, he set up a meeting with mom at midnight at a garbage, at a, at a junkyard. And now he's calling her on the phone to change it to nine o'clock. Why not just make it? It's why not just make it at nine o'clock in that original scene? This is just all. This is all padding. This is just not needed. It's it's drawing out the story when the story doesn't need to be drawn out. 
We change the meeting to 9 o'clock. Now we need Dr. Detroit. We've heard Dr. Detroit. We've talked about Dr. Detroit. Now we need to see Dr. Detroit. They're on a college. What's the one thing you do have at a college? You got a theater department. Theater department has clothing. So Dan Aykroyd and the chauffeur, uh, Diablo, they run into the theater department and they they grab a bunch of costumes. You don't see them grab costumes, but the door closes and you hear Dan Aykroyd like, hand me that, hand me that. And why would you hand me that? Hand me that, hand me that. Cut to the junkyard. And it's Dan Aykroyd and Diablo and the four women and they're here to meet mom. And grant you, this is Dan Aykroyd if he was a normal, once again, if he was a normal, everyday professor, he is in way over his head. He has no idea how to handle the situation. He is dealing with pimps and murderers and just, and people who have just been criminals their entire life. He, has the, he is putting himself in a position to get killed. So this is really, really stupid on his part. He's doing it for the girls. And he's doing it for women that he met less than 48 hours ago. How many of you out there would stick your neck out for a group of people who, in essence, kidnapped you and drugged you and made you do things in a drunken state that you really didn't want to do, and now you're sticking up for him? That's what's happening in this movie. He's, he's defending and he's helping people who basically drugged him. It doesn't make sense from a logical point of view but let, let's just let's just forget all that and he's at the junkyard he's with the, he the four women are with him the chauffeur diablo's with him and now it's time to see dr detroit and dr detroit comes out and he's wearing white boots and green slacks and a red shirt and a yellow sports jacket and a big blonde wig orange glasses and a hook uh, not a hook a metal hand not a hook hand, but a metal hand. And my first thought was, what were these things doing in the theater department? What play were they putting on where all these clothes would be in the theater department? Uh, Dan Aykroyd and, you know, Dan Aykroyd is Dr. Detroit and Mom. They go head to head. They start yelling at each other. Dan Aykroyd smashes the windshield of one of her limos and and she yells kill the son of a bitch and all of her henchmen there with guns start shooting at him he should be dead right there and it's the movie trope where people with machine guns can't hit anything i'm sure if you give me a machine gun i could hit somebody none of these guys with machine guns so we have the we have the junkyard chase where he's where he's running through the piles of junk and they're chasing him in cars and they're crashing into cars and the, the big mounds of Damaged, you know, old automobiles are falling down on him. And Dan Aykroyd swinging from a chain. I think at this point we're supposed to maybe see the psychotic break between, uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd, the professor, and Dan Aykroyd as Dr. Detroit. I'm thinking the line's getting very, very blurred because he's talking him to himself as both characters. One minute he's the professor, one minute he's Dr. Detroit. Like I said, it's not really clear, but from what I'm getting at this point in the movie is that... The you know the two personalities are 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 splitting and both living within Dan Aykroyd. We cut to a close up of Mom. Mom is all alone in the junkyard, and we see this giant hook come up beside her. And once again, 
the move it's the movie trope of I have no peripheral vision. I can't see this big metal hook coming up behind me. And this big metal hook comes up behind her and it clinches around her and it raises her up and it's Dan Aykroyd in this machine. I don't even know what this machine is for. I guess it was for, you know, grabbing cars and and you know, putting them on top of the pile. They clamp it around mom and they raise mom like a hundred feet in the air and drop her into into a pile of, of dented old cars, which <coughs> honestly would kill a person. Dan Aykroyd just murdered a person right there. Now, granted, they were trying to murder him, but he murdered somebody. Or he should have murdered somebody. I'll tell you more as the podcast goes on. He should have murdered somebody, but he didn't. Diablo and the girls, they find this old tow truck and they they Dan Aykroyd hops on the back of it and they crash through the wall and they're out of the junkyard. Say I okay. Alright, so you've just murdered mom and now you're the you're the head pimp in Chicago. This movie takes place in Chicago. Which uh like the Blues Brothers took place in Chicago and Dan Aykroyd uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd loves Chicago, even though he did his second city in Toronto. Um, you know, Chicago was his second home for a second city. We cut to the train station where Dan Aykroyd had to pick up the guy that had the big check. He's got the big check for the college. And Dan Aykroyd is late. And these biker looking guys look at him and it's like, do you have, do you need a taxi? And the guy's like, yeah, can you get me to this place? And they're like, yeah. And then, like, four guys follow him out. It's like, is this guy an idiot? These four guys are going to drive you in a taxi? So we see Dan Aykroyd rush in, and he's missed the guy, and we cut to the next day, and everybody's worried. Where's the guy? Actually, Dan Aykroyd's dad, George Firth, um, he's not, he's pretending he's worried about the guy, but he's really worried about the check. He needs that check. We need to keep the college open. We need that check. And the police show up. And the guy with the check is there. He's got the briefcase and he's in his underwear. And it's nothing is explained. And I guess that's what the joke is. Because he gets out of the car and he goes, they tried to get the check, but they couldn't. But the guy is in his underwear. So they took his clothes, but they didn't take his briefcase. And what happened to this guy? It's all all treated very, very nonchalant. And... I don't know. That's to me. That's not a. I I know that's a, a form of comedy that people like when people underplay the situation. I always like it when a situation is treated as real. That makes it funnier to me. And this this guy, we don't know what these bikers did to him, but we never know. And it's just treated as very casual. It's just like, oh, so they took your pants off. What? How they get your pants off? And he goes one leg at a time. It's a, there's got to be a big party that night uh, for this guy. You know, they're, they're buttering him up. They want this check. And Dan Aykroyd was in charge of the catering. And he forgot the catering. You know, he runs over to the apartment where the four girls are. And he tells them, it's like, I forgot the catering. And they're like, and all the four girls, this is a very symbiotic relationship. And once again, I don't understand. I don't, uh, it's movie magic where these four girls feel something for this guy who they just met. And what if they wanted to, they could just leave Chicago. You know, they could, if they, if you're a hooker, you could be a hooker anywhere 
they could just leave Chicago. Well, our head pimp is gone. This woman who we don't want to work for wants, uh, just go, just leave. Do you think they're going to track you down? I don't know. I don't know about, much about the pimp prostitution world. So it's a symbiotic relationship where, okay, where Dan Aykroyd is helping these strangers out and these strangers are helping Dan Aykroyd out. Dan Aykroyd to go to sleep and, and Dan Aykroyd falls asleep and the four girls and Diablo, the, the chauffeur, they get the catering together. So Dan Aykroyd wakes up and he rushes into the house and everybody's there. All the alumni are there and the guy with the check is there and his mom is there and his dad is there and he comes rushing in and... The four girls have taken care of anything. They've taken care of the catering. They have taken care of the entertainment. They have taken care of the music. It's tit for tat, so to speak. Dan Aykroyd helped them out of a tight spot. They helped him out of a tight spot. Party's going on. It's going well. You know, Dan Aykroyd is actually, he's actually relaxing at this point because uh, all the crazy stuff he thinks is behind him. It's like, okay, I defeated mom. She's gone. I can just go back to being a, a normal, everyday professor. Well, that's not it. It's Now he has to be crowned king. He has to be crowned king of the streets because he defeated mom, Dr. Detroit. And I don't know why they're, they're still going with this. So, so Dan Aykroyd has to go back out on the street as Dr. Detroit and make his presence known and... Uh, you know, the, the crowning ceremony. They keep talking about the crowning ceremony. And they're like, well, tomorrow night you're going to be crowned. You know, you're going to be crowned king of the streets of Chicago. And once again, he's like, I can't make it. You know, this is, we're at the point now where his professional life and his Dr. Detroit life are really butting heads. Uh, he, you know, he, he can't do both of them. And, and survive as a person. Each one is just taking its toll on him. It's just draining him as a human being. But but their team, his team is like, no, no, you've got to be there. You've got to be, if you're not crowned the king of, you know, if you're not crowned the king of Chicago, somebody else may take in and we'll have to pimp for them. Okay. So, but he's like, I can't be. I have to be at the swanky dinner tomorrow to introduce the guy who's going to give the college a big endowment. So you know where this is headed. This is headed to where, okay, where the two worlds are going to clash in one in one spot. We've seen it in dozens and dozens of movies. The two worlds are going to collide. And how's Dan Aykroyd going to get out of this? We'll find out. They arrange for the kinging of Dr. Detroit to be in the same hotel as the party where they are giving uh, the speech and for the big check from uh, the alumna, alumni, the big check from the guy. Pulling up at the hotel, the stiff, you know, the, the middle-aged white, the, not middle-aged, past middle-aged, the older white guys in tuxedos and, you know, the, 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 the hip cool people, are, you know, once again, it's another juxtaposition. The hip cool people are showing up and the old guys in the tuxedos are showing up and they're button heads and... And Dan Aykroyd shows up, and he sees all these people here, and now he's freaking out because what's he going to do now? And what, they convince him, it's just go over there, just go over there and make, you know, let him know that the doctor is here and that the doctor is the king, and you, you need to do that. If you don't do that, we're going to, for some reason, if he doesn't do that, there's going to be trouble. It's never really explained what happens if he doesn't do that. He just has to do it. And once again, he gives in. I guess at this point, I guess, I, 
maybe at this point, if he said that he didn't want to do it, they could blackmail him, tell his parents that he's Dr. Detroit. I don't know. But he does it. So he works his way over to the other side of the hotel where everybody's partying and James Brown is there. Another connection. James Brown was in the Blues Brothers movie. And this scene in Dr. Detroit is very, very reminiscent and very, very close to the scene in the Blues Brothers movie. Because James Brown, he starts singing. Honestly, I think this is the only movie that has Devo and James Brown on the same soundtrack. So that's kind of cool. So James Brown starts singing and Dan Aykroyd and everybody on the dance floor starts doing this choreographed dance number, which looks very, very, very similar to the church scene in the Blues Brothers where where uh, James Brown is preaching and he goes into singing and they start dancing and then the Blues Brothers start dancing in front of him. It's very, very reminiscent of that. They do the dance number. Dan Aykroyd gets up on the stage next to James Brown gives him his cred and says, I have to go. And then he runs through the kitchen and he, while he's changing back into Dan Aykroyd, he runs into mom. So mom, so mom's there. Mom is not dead. She has a broken arm. That's it. So when you fall a hundred feet into jagged metal, the only thing that happens is you break your arm. Man, that is one tough lady. Running through the kitchen, mom sees Dan Aykroyd, sends her goons to get him. Now Dan Aykroyd is sitting on the dais in the proper party room with everybody prim and proper <clears throat> and we've seen this before where the two henchmen are closing in on him so he hops up and makes a speech that happens in this movie this reminded me of the scene in Fletch where Fletch is being closed in on by the police officers and Chevy Chase stands up and starts making a speech it reminded me of that scene of course this came first so maybe Fletch took from this Get to the point where Dan Aykroyd makes his speech and then he runs out of the room while the thugs run after him. And once again, nobody reacts in the in the party. You know, his dad and his mom and all these people do not re, do not react that one of the people in this room is being chased by two bald men. You know, he's being screamed at, he's being chased. Nobody does anything. Nobody offers to help him as he runs out. So he runs out, and he changes back into Dr. Detroit. And he tells everybody, it's like, we got to get out of here. But before it's too late, but it is too late, because Mom comes in, and now the, it's the big showdown between Dr. Detroit and Mom. You know, they're sizing each other up, and these two shish kebabs come out, and Dan Aykroyd grabs one, and it's a sword, and Mom grabs one. So we have this, we have this sword fight through the kitchen, and once again, we were talking about earlier about Dan Aykroyd's teaching about these romantic characters and sword fights and stuff like that. So I, so this is obviously another play on that, on the romanticism of chivalry and all that. And it goes through the kitchen and it goes out into the room where Dan Aykroyd's parents are and all the, and all the stiff white men and the doors open and all the people. And once again, so now where we were once separated, the two worlds, now the two worlds com really collide because all the people from the Dr. Detroit world and all the people from Dan Aykroyd's academic world, they're all in the same room. Everybody is together while the sword fight is going on. And during the sword fight, Dan Aykroyd loses his wig. So we find out that Dan Aykroyd is Dr. Detroit. 
And the sword fight continues, and he defeats Mom. And Mom says, kill me. <laughs> well, okay, well, he's not going to kill you in front of, you know, hundreds of witnesses. While he defeats her in battle, he vanquishes her. We're going back to the to the romanticism. He's vanquishing her. You know, never, never darken Cook County again. And she's dragged off, and you can hear her hear and you can hear her yelling, I'll be back, I'll be back, as she's dragged off. This seems a little anticlimactic to me, this big showdown between Dr. Detroit and Mom. He's, he defeats her in a sword fight, and then he's like, okay, she's gone. I mean, what's to stop her once she's thrown out of the building just to stay there? There's no real reason for her to leave. Dan Aykroyd makes another speech. He tells the four, and this speech is a lot like the speech in 1941 where he gets up and he's supposed to inspire people. And once again, he does a good job inspiring people with the speech. He tells the he tells the women that they are no longer slaves to to anybody. They can do what they want. They're free. And he basically tells everybody, you, you know, you, you're not a slave to what you think you have to do. You can do anything you want. And then pretty much the movie is over until we get the end of the movie. And the end of the movie is exactly like Animal House, where you, where you see the captions on the bottom of what happened to the people. So-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that. And that's what you get at the end of this movie. We see what happens to them. We don't see what happens to them. We read what happens to them. And one of the things that happens is Dan Aykroyd marries the Fran Drescher character in this movie. Which doesn't make any sense because there was no romantic connection between them. There was no romantic connection between any of Dan Aykroyd and the girls throughout this whole movie. So this at the end where they get married comes out of nowhere. There's no setup. The joke they were going for is that they're both Jewish, I guess? Not much of a joke? I don't get it. And and with the end credits, too, I said this is what I was going to talk about earlier, is Howard Hessman, you see at the end credits, he's lounging in a hammock in this tropical paradise surrounded by four women drinking a drink out of a coconut. That's his life now. His life is perfect now. When you see somebody as slimy and as manipulative as a character that Howard Hessman is playing in the movie, you want to see him get his, such as in Animal House, where, uh, you know, uh, where Niedermeyer was killed by his troops in Vietnam. You want to see, that, even though you don't want to see that, you want to know what happens to them. So the fact that Howard Hessman didn't get his, that sort of bothered me in this movie. He's one of the slimiest characters I've seen in a movie in a while. And he gets off scot-free. He's okay. So if anybody's worried about the Howard, Howard Hessman character in this movie, he's doing okay. And at the end of the movie, we, hear, we see the title, And They Lived Happily Ever After. Until, and there's this big title card, Dr. Detroit 2, The Wrath of Mom. Which, quite frankly, might be the funniest joke in this movie. And it's the very, very last thing you see. And then that's the end of the movie. And credits roll. And that is the end of Dr. Detroit. What I like to do in these movies is 
try to piece together connections of people in these movies. Uh, first connection was actually a real romantic connection. Uh, Donna Dixon, who played one of the prostitutes, uh, Dan Aykroyd met her on this movie, and they eventually became married, and they're still married to this day. So good for you, Dan and Donna. Donna Dixon was on the TV show Bosom Buddies, which starred Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks starred with Dan Aykroyd in Dragnet, which will be a future podcast coming up. T.K. Carter, who played the chauffeur Diablo, starred with Chevy Chase, It Seems Like Old Times, and of course we all know Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, Saturday Night Live, Spies Like Us, um, Nothing But Trouble. I don't know that much about Fran Drescher. I know she was on The Nanny. There might be a nanny connection here. I don't know. Dr. Detroit as a whole. Not a very good movie. Not a very funny movie. It's mild comedy surrounded by pieces to get you from mild over-the-top comedy to mild over-the-top comedy. We see Dan Aykroyd play several, not several, but a couple of different characters. And he is known for his character. He The, the southern... The Southern uh, lawyer scene is very funny. Uh, A couple of the scenes with him as Dr. Detroit is very funny. Uh, Quite frankly, the best scene of the movie is when James Brown is singing and they're dancing. It takes your eyes. It's it's nicely choreographed. The music is great. James Brown sounds great. So the best scene in this comedy is this musical number. And actually, the best... The beginning credits... With Devo playing, that was fun too. Dan Aykroyd is speed walking through the credits, and somehow the the music and Dan Aykroyd speed walking just sort of go together, and it's a very nice flow to the opening credits of the movie. So the two musical numbers in the movie make the movie. Dan Aykroyd's performance as a whole, he he was in a lot of scenes. He did his best as he could. It wasn't a very strong script. He played the characters Dr. Detroit and the Southern Lawyer. It was a they were very very distinct characters which he is known for. He's known for his character work. I liked seeing the different characters in the movie. I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to see wackier. Dan Aykroyd's performance in Dr. Detroit is okay. And Dr. Detroit is an okay movie. From what I've seen, pretty much everybody agrees with that. All the all the reviews are around like five. It's like right in the middle. And and that's something you don't want to be as a movie. You don't want to be right in the middle. You either want to be really good or really bad. That way you can enjoy it. So this movie is very, very middle-of-the-road comedy for, for Dan Aykroyd, for everybody watching. If people were... Looking for the wackiness of the Blues Brothers or Animal House, they're not going to find it in this movie. Even though the I watched the trailers, even though the trailers told you that you were, you weren't going to see that. Is Doctor Detroit worth a rewatch? I would give it a long, long time before I rewatched this one. Maybe try to forget, try to forget it, and then watch it again, and I'll probably remember why I didn't watch it that much. To begin with. Dr. Detroit. Skip it. I would say skip it. It's 
it's a, if you want to see a, a 1980s time capsule, maybe I would watch it. If you want need something playing in the background while you're doing something, this might be the, the movie to do it. But if you want to sit down and enjoy a good comedy, this is not the movie. Uh, this is not the movie for you. All right. Well, that's the end of this one. My second Dan Aykroyd podcast. Actually, my first Dan Aykroyd podcast after the Dan Aykroyd is batshit crazy. So, But from now on, this podcast is going to be called the Dan Aykroyd podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. A couple of things before I go. Uh, please support this podcast and support me. And you can support this podcast on uh, on anywhere where the podcast can be heard. But you can also support me on my Patreon page, uh, www.patreon backslash Scott White. That can support me and all my other projects. I have uh, four and a half minute movie reviews on my YouTube page, uh, youtube.com backslash Scott White Comedian. Please check those out. Um, just, uh, I'll put the links of all my social sites out there and, uh, you know, just find me on Facebook, check out what I'm doing and, uh, that's it. Okay. Uh, I'm hoping I'm going to edit this one as soon as I can and I'm going to get it out there. I want to thank everybody for having patience with me with my first one. I know my first podcast was a bit rough, but I'm learning. Thank you guys for giving me the time to do this.